Um, just before I kind of throw it open, I was asked a, a sort of pre-question, um, which was about actually about my own personal history, about how I discovered meditation. I'm generally quite reluctant to talk about this, but since I've been asked it, um, I'll just say a couple of words about it, not go into any detail. But I came to the particular path of meditation um, and Buddhist practice a long time ago, 42 years ago. How horrific to think about it. Um, but I went to India when I was 17 and uh, ended up studying with Tibetans in Dharamasala. I'd gone to India primarily um, to study more about Buddhism and, and about Hinduism. I'd been kind of, how would I say, besotted with all this stuff from about the age of 10 or 11. Yeah, I was really, really fascinated by Eastern thought and Eastern religion and yoga and all sorts of things. And as soon as I felt I was old enough, I took myself off to India overland on my own, um, the usual way, lots of people were doing it at that time, just taking public transport until I wound up in Delhi, not knowing what the climate um, in India was at that time of the year, which was April, which is the hottest time of the whole year. So I arrived in Delhi and the temperature was 41 <laughs> degrees. Um, and luckily, somebody said to me, he said, you know, you look like you're really suffering why don't you go up to this place called Dharamasala, which is where the Dalai Lama lived and where the Tibetan exiles hung out. And so I went up there. And um, that's where I discovered Tibetan Buddhism. And I was involved with Tibetan Buddhism for a long, long time. I mean, in those days, there was a kind of small clique of people. Unbeknownst to either of us, somebody else who's one of the primary teachers at Gaia House, Christina Feldman, was also in Gaia House at the age of seven, in um, Dharmasala at the age of 17, up the hill, and I was down the hill. <laughs> uh, she was studying with one teacher, and I was studying with another teacher. And in, these day, in those days, um, we had this wonderful privilege of being able to go onto the Dalai Lama's door and knock on the door and ask to see him. Um, which you couldn't possibly do now. And so at the tender age of 17, I managed to get a two-hour interview with the Dalai Lama at the age of 17. So that's where I started off, and then I ended up um, in the monastic traditions in South India. Uh, the majority of Tibetan exiles, I don't know if many people realize this, but the majority of Tibetan exiles and refugees are actually in South India, not in northern India. Uh, in big areas, and I was in two major monasteries um, in South India. Um, both of them primarily uh, monasteries where you didn't do much meditation, actually, surprisingly enough. It was mainly debate. I was involved in intellectual debate for six days a week, six hours a day, um, for over three and a half years um, in South India. And then I went eventually, and this is partly through an interest in Buddhist psychology which I developed, which is Ab Abhidharma studies, for anybody who knows what that is, but it's primarily Buddhist psychology. I went to Sri Lanka and studied in Sri Lanka um, and really began to explore the meditation traditions properly there. I mean, we did do meditation in the Tibetan tradition, but it was primarily um, things like tantric meditations. 
um, which are quite complex and involve lots of visualizations and all sorts of weird stuff. Um, but, you know, that's basically what happened to me. And I was out in the East for quite a long time, came back to the West, continued to practice, never thought ever about teaching, and just wound up finding myself in this position, teaching, at some point. I can't even remember when. <laughs> it seems so long ago. Um, and I've always basically been involved in, in uh, things Buddhist, wound up teaching Buddhist studies at uh, Bristol University, and languages as well. So that's a little bit about me. It's a, it's a quite a long history. <laughs> okay, let's throw it out to the more interesting stuff. Okay, what sort of questions do people have, or comments, or anything? This is where your mind is wiped with the magic eraser. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, <laughs> a little bit about merit. Okay, let me let me just try and paraphrase that question. Um, the person asking this question was actually saying that in the beginning I spoke about habit and how you can't really overcome a habit with a habit. Um, so it's not really about developing good habits in preference to bad habits eventually. And also question a little bit about merit. Um, I suppose the place of merit in all of this and what merit can do. Okay. And the first one, well, as I think, I mean, I'm kind of reiterating what I did say on that, probably, probably the first evening, I would think, is that what we're embedded into is patterns of habits, mental and physical habits. These have been developed over the course of our life. You know. There's a technical term for them, which is, um, in Pali, a term which is sankara, um, which can loosely translate, it's actually a technical translation as well, which is actually formations, and this is to do with karma, it's to do with action, it's to do with activity, activity and consequences. And we form these over the course of a lifetime because obviously things come to us and we have to deal with them and we act in the world and before you know it we've got a whole set of habits. You know, as the German language poet Rilke once said, he said, the habit moves in and doesn't leave. You know, and that's what happens to us. So we develop a lot of habits which in the initial stages of the, of the activities we engage in, both mental and physical, they often can be responses to a situation. But then, of course, we keep on reapplying the same kind of things again and again and again. And it becomes very ritualistic, the whole thing. So habits are basically grooves in the mind, grooves down which our thinking runs, and thinking gives rise to action. I mean, that quotation I gave you the other night, which I explored with you, this is what actually ends up being our lives. So if our life is dominated by habit, there's not much freedom in it, actually. There's very, very little freedom for us to operate when we're operating within habit. 
Now, we would think, of course, that um, the thing really to do then is to develop good habits. And that's partly what we do. So instead of unwholesome sankharas, we don't tend to use the word good and bad so much, although they are used occasionally. The word is kusala or akusala, wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful. Instead of unwholesome, unskillful habits, we perhaps concentrate a little bit more on trying to develop some reasonable habits. But the whole purpose of the path eventually is to overcome all habit, both good and bad. Because even if it's a good habit, it becomes a ritual. And actually good habits then, when they become ritualistic, often end up being bad habits. They're not genuinely responsive to the situations we find ourselves in. They're almost like rules that we keep applying, no matter whether it's good or bad, wholesome or unwholesome, let's use the correct language here. And so we keep applying it. So the whole point about the, the path is really to free ourselves from all habits, both good and bad, to actually get to that state of freeing the mind so it can tape up a responsive position. Habit is always reactive. Let's, let's make that point quite strongly. Habit is always reactive. It's always reacting to a situation. It's very limited in scope and doesn't actually see the situation it operates in. Yeah. It doesn't actually see clearly. Um, it's, it's almost like keep applying the same thing each time a situation arises. And so habits actually are dulling the mind. Yeah. Um, the Buddha was very, very against this. Even, even I mean, He came from a highly ritualized society where people were doing supposedly good ritual habits a lot of the time. And he said if this is one of the major forms of clinging was the clinging to rites and rituals, the clinging to habitual ways of doing things in general. And habit can be broadened to cover all of kind of religious activity as well as all of our propensities to behave in similar ways again and again and again. So it's freeing ourselves. This is partly what liberation is about, freeing ourselves from all habitual responses. Now, as an interim stage, it is obviously better to develop some good habits rather than bad ones. But it is only an interim stage. Um, They can also, perhaps in, in the absence of a genuine responsiveness, the development of some good habits in the initial stages can be almost like a default option that we can fall back on yeah. uh, when we don't know what to do. Better to do something that um, you know, is a little bit more wholesome than to fall into the trap, perhaps, of engaging in more unwholesome behaviour. But it is actually the freeing ourselves, the overcoming of all habit that the Buddha is talking about. This is the freedom of mind he speaks about. You know, if the mind is just running down grooves, whether or good or bad, it's just still running down those grooves. There is no real freedom there. There's no real freedom of responsiveness. So that's a little bit about habit. Merit's a strange term. Yeah, I mean, the word in Pali is punya. Um, And actually is probably derived from pre-Buddhist contexts. 
I don't think it's even, it's it's a strange thing. Really all merit is, um, this word punya, is is wholesome karmic action. That is all it is. In other words, wholesome activity hopefully will give rise to wholesome fruits, to wholesome um, consequences of actions. But it gets very generalized in the history of Buddhism. And as I say, I think it's a pre-Buddhist idea, the idea of merit. And then we get these strange ideas, like the transference of merit as well within. How you could possibly give your own actions to somebody else and the consequences of your actions to somebody else, I just find really impossible to even get my head around. Um, (laughs) You know, it just just seems slightly... Dotty, um, to put it mildly. Um, but it is something that's grown up in the history of Buddhism, but it's much more of a metaphysical uh, doctrine. It's not found in the earliest strata of Buddhist thought. You know, merit is only found post the Buddha's death. The Buddha doesn't speak about merit making. Yeah. He doesn't talk about he doesn't speak about fields of merit, which is something else you get. Um, an idea that occurs that there are fields of merit in the monastic sangha. This is a way of feathering their own nest, by the way. Uh, the monastic sangha becomes the greatest field of merit. So that's the best thing to give, you know, um, you know give money and material goods to and things like this. Uh, and then there's a kind of, <laughs> there's a sort of other stages of making merit. Um, but the monastic sangha is the one where you make the most merit. This has been highly abused, this whole idea, in the history of Buddhism, to be quite honest. There was a group in Sri Lanka in around about the 3rd and 5th centuries called Pansukulika in Pali. Pansukulika actually refers to one of the practices that the Buddha just about allowed into the repertoire of things that monks could do, which was wearing rags. Yeah. Um, this sect, the Pansakulikas, became the most wealthy sect in the whole of Sri Lanka um, because everybody thought they were so austere they gave lots and lots of money to them. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, a, it's a very strange idea. It's a much, much later idea than the Buddha is really where I'd want to rest it. Um, but... I think the foundation of engaging in good, wholesome activity, yeah. uh, whether we call it merit, punya, or not, is obviously very, very important. It's extremely important um, that we look at our activities. Part of what mindfulness is about, or part of what the um, whole development of mindfulness is about, is actually beginning to become aware of our actions and their possible consequences. Yeah. Now, often we engage in activities with the opposite of mindfulness, mindlessly, and therefore we don't know what the consequences are of our actions. Now, this is not exactly the same as merit, I think, as understood within the tradition, but this is, I think, far more practical in terms of what I think we need to do, is begin to look at our activities and the consequences that might result from them. Yeah not start taking things like, you know, oh, that didn't mean anything, or that was just a throwaway gesture, or that was just a throwaway remark. 
when we become much more aware, when we become much more mindful, I think we begin to see that actually everything that we do has a consequence. Everything that we do. You know, even doing nothing has a consequence to it. So it's kind of expanded your question a little bit there, but I hope I kind of dealt with it a little bit. Yeah, yeah and then go all in a row. <laughs> Most people give because of merit. <laughs> it is what supports the monks. I mean, the whole um, there's a there's a peculiarity that's gone on in the history again of, of Buddhist practice. The idea was a social contract that the Buddha developed between the monastic community and the social community, the rest of the bulk of the community, and the the the, the social contract was in. In, you know, for support on, on obviously a material level, which is for food and you know, accommodation and clothing and everything else, the monks would therefore give teachings, you know, would actually give teachings. And in fact, it's written into the Vinaya Code, which is the discipline code, that if somebody asks you three times for a teaching as a monastic, you have to give it. You, know, you can't dodge it. You can't say, oh, no, I'm too busy and all this sort of thing, you have to give it. It's part, it's part of the code, so it's part of the contract. Now, even in, in Theravada countries to this day, if you go to Burma, Sri Lanka, Thailand, Laos, Cambodia a little bit, if you go to these cultures, what you'll find is also the village monastery is the village school. Yeah. So that's the way the monks give back to the community in terms of, you know, for, for their support. So in the early days, it was just a matter of support, and it was a reciprocity um, that was aimed at. Then we get this idea of merit coming in, where actually merit, if I accumulate a lot of merit, and there's this idea of accumulation of merit, then I will get a better rebirth. Yeah. Now, this goes to ludicrous extremes. In the Chinese tradition... Um, people keep merit um, merit books. They do. It's like your little, it's like your credit and debit sheet. <laughs> you know, you record all your meritorious actions and all of your unmeritorious actions, and you balance them out to see where you are. <laughs> you know, this is part, particularly of things like Pure Land traditions in in China. You have these merit you know, merit bank balances, basically is what, what they have. And so, obviously, if you do good works for the Sangha, the Sangha can be considered to be the most meritorious activities that you can give to. Then you get much, much more merit, therefore you accumulate this merit, and therefore you're supposedly going to get a better rebirth. I think it's all nonsense, to be quite honest. Yeah, I really think it's all nonsense. It's, it's um, again, something I think that the monastic Sangha over the centuries has really fostered because it obviously has benefits for them. Yeah. It has real benefits for, for those sanghas. And, and I'm not just being cynical. I think this is, this is a real sea change from the time of the Buddha where it was much more about the simple social interactive contract uh, between the monks and the, the laity. Yeah.
and then the lady behind, and then Meg. <laughs> Yes, I agree, I agree with that. I mean, I, this is very much a Mahayanist idea. I might add. It's very much Mahayana, the idea of transference of merit. Um, you don't find it so much in the, as I say, in the early tradition. I think as, how would I put it? I think as a thought experiment, it's useful. Yeah, as a thought experiment to engage in. You know, just like, you know, in a sense, meta is a thought experiment what we do is we incline our minds and what I think we're doing in that so-called transference of merit, I don't believe actually transference of merit can occur because it would be a very peculiar metaphysical thing anyway. Um, I think it's more about how you incline your mind, you know, what you incline your mind to and what this is meant to is incline your mind towards generosity. The whole emphasis actually on giving in the tradition, you know, giving to the Sangha, and that was partly social contract, but it was to foster the sense of selflessness through giving, you know, through generosity, you know, through generosity, through giving, and you know, these are particularly this is particularly fostered in Theravadan countries still. Um, it's not so much within you know, some of the big monastic communities in Tibet and, and China; they were just too huge. But on the idea of you know people going on what's called pindapat, which is actually the alms round. Um, people will get the opportunity to offer something um, to the monastics. You know, there was no compulsion to do this. Um, it was you know, a free sense of giving because the, the monastic, as a monk, you would stand outside the door somewhere holding your bowl and if nobody gave you anything, you move on. It's as simple as that. Uh, and, but I think all of that, all of these practices are there to generate this, you're always giving away something of yourself in the actual act of giving. It's always, if you like, decreasing in Western senses, there's no direct Pali equivalent for this, but you're always giving away something of the ego when you're doing this. So I think as a, as a, as a practice of dedicating, actually I think dedicating, your activities for the benefit of others, not just for yourself, is a very useful thought experiment, a very useful way of inclining your mind. So I would tend to agree with you. No. But the actual metaphysics of it, I just don't think. Uh, <coughs> no, can I go back to Greenland and the Virgin? Oh, if you really want to go back to Greenland and the Virgin. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. 
Yes, that's a very, that's a very good question. I, was, I hope everybody heard most of that question. It's, it's a question about greed and aversion and you know, whether people fall into these types, whether there's greed types and aversion types. And the quick answer to that is yes. And there's certainly character types. There's lots of delineation of character types. As, um, you know, psychologically, there are mixed types. Yeah, there's even intellectual types and all sorts of other types. But greed and aversion are kind of the two basic types. You, know, you can be a greed type and aversion type. Uh, and both of them are actually founded on being a deluded type. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's where we are. Um, and the other part of your question about you know, whether it falls into... Well, I think you know, greed certainly falls into the agitated, hungry mind. Yeah, the hungry ears, the hungry eyes, everything else, that's greed. Um, an aversion is, is certainly, um, we see this very, very full-blown in, in some depressive states with um, low self-esteem, hatred of oneself, dislike of oneself. We see this a lot in aversive, aversive types. So yes, we do get these two very strong um, polarities, I think, in, in individuals. You often see it portrayed, I mean, one of the wonderful things about the Tibetan tradition, as you heard me say, which is the earliest tradition I was involved in, they actually have this thing called the Six Realms, which is a wonderful psychological description of the, of the different types. And you certainly get the aversive types there. And the aversive types are usually characterized in a way uh, as being a bit like in a hell realm. You know, constantly torturing themselves. Um, nobody's doing it to them, they're doing it to themselves. You know, their punishments are meted out by what they see in a mirror which is held up to them. You know, it's a wonderful metaphor for this. Uh, the greed types, as some of you may know, if you know this particular diagram, are usually characterized as what's called petas, or preto realms. And they have tiny pinhole mouths and little thin necks and massive stomachs. And as you can see, what happens is they can never get enough to satisfy their appetites you know, for food and drink. Uh, and so it's a realm of immense pain because of the agitation by behind never able to satisfy an appetite behind it. So, you know, both of them have agitations and, and dukkha really written into that. If you are really steeped in greed and aversion... Um, it's not a pleasant place to be, you know. And I think with most of us, it waxes and wanes. You know, we'll have type, you know, we'll have times when it's much, much more obvious than at other times when it's much more almost nascent. It's not quite come to the forefront, but you know, there's the trigger, and there it is. There's the aversion. You know, I mean, I can look around the world, and it's it's almost like an eye of seeing the world. When I'm in a state of, in, when I'm in a state of aversion, I can look around the world and everything is wrong. <laughs> yeah, there is no way anything is going to be right. And if I walk, look around the world with the eye of greed, uh, equally, there's nothing I don't want. Yeah, I want it. Yeah, I want everything that's being on offer, basically. Um, there are states which are full of great dukkha. I mean... The, I suppose the last thing to really say about these is that these are obviously um, characteristics of all of us. Yeah. Although you might sway towards one type more than the other, 
greed, aversion and delusion are the root. And this is what they're called, they're called mula, they're called roots um, of all of the unwholesome psychology that we have. So aversive types, you know, for example, get irritation, you know, anger. You know, these are part of, if you like, the genealogical tree that's traceable back to the root of aversion. Uh, greed, um, well, you get a bit of mixture there because you get things like jealousy arising, you know, covetousness, you know, miserliness. You know, all of these psychological states are all attributable to the root of greed. You know, so they, all of this unwholesome psychology is actually rooted in it. And underlying all of that is this delusion-confusion state. There's no, there's no reason given why you'd be a greed type or an aversion type. It's really, it, you know, the traditions in general don't look into origins of things. They just say, actually, if that's the way that you're manifesting psychologically, there's no point in looking back as to an origin of how that comes about. That's the way you are at this moment in time. Now work with it. It's very much of that sort of... I don't know if everybody again heard that question here. Um, about, in a sense, what was the origin? You know, where, where does this come from, whether you're a greed type or an aversive type? Well, actually, the tradition in general, and particularly the early texts, say, don't bother to go into it. This is not psychoanalysis. This is actually dealing with it as it's manifesting. So if you are you know, manifesting in this world psychologically as an aversive or, or a greed type, then deal with it get on and actually work with that process um, rather than search around for where it came from. I could search around for ages for where it came from and still be as greedy and as aversive as it was before. <laughs> yeah. Jeeva and then. It is linked to appreciative joy. Um, traditionally, again, again, I think this has slightly gone wrong somewhere in the tradition. Traditionally, uh, as one of the Brahma Viharas, um, mudita, which is what this is, mudita or um, appreciative joy, sometimes it could be just translated as gentle joy, um, is not usually extended towards oneself. It's really only extended towards others. I think this is a big, big mistake. You know, it's actually appreciating your own good fortune as well, not just the good fortune of others. And that's, I think, a very, very useful psychological practice for us all. However, there is one tradition, um, a Japanese tradition, um, which is called Shin Buddhism. And Shin Buddhism, its total practice is gratitude. That's what it does. I mean, I used to know a, a professor in Tokyo who was a Shin Buddhist. And uh, before he went into university, he used to go to the temple every day, sweep the whole of the temple every day. 
then sit down and just, um, in some senses, pay gratitude for everything that he had that was good in his life. Yeah. And that was his regular daily practice, and that was all he did. Yeah. It wasn't a meditative practice in the sense that we are uh, doing these practices here, but it was just this sense of invoking gratitude for what we have. I think it's a wonderful antidote to, you know, we can all of us be in the state of, if you like, kind of whinging about what we haven't got. You know, let's take some time and actually appreciate what we have got in this life. You know, that I can do this with my hand. You know, what a wonderful thing to be able to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I did. I think it is. It is a wonderful practice. Yeah. I think it's there much more within this tradition, you know, not the Shin tradition, where it's actually much more over. I think it's there much more within the sense of the Brahma Viharas, you know, of actually appreciating, you know, what we have. What is the what is the good fortune in our lives? Most of us have some good fortune, even if it's just to have good friends in our lives, people who we know have helped us. You know, the practice of, you know, for example, the meta practice. I don't know if you realize this, the practice of the benefactor, there's something to be grateful for. That some people throughout your life have helped you on your way in some way or another. And actually, you could probably do this practice every day for a year with a different person, if you really thought about it. We have been helped by incalculable numbers of people in our lives. You know, from very little things to quite major things. And it's obviously it's easier to identify the major, if you like, benefactors in our life. But to be grateful, you know, to be appreciative that we've had that help on our way you know, through life. I mean, I think there's very, very few people that can actually hand on heart say they haven't had any help with their life. I think this is a really, again, a useful practice to be engaged in. So I think it's sort of somewhere between that um, the sense of the benefactors who's helped us and also the appreciation of what is good in our lives. Yeah. Yeah, it's really to be, really to be valued. You don't find anything in the early text really about this. I mean, you get the more gendered stuff in later developments, such as Tantra, which is very much about the use of the female and male energies within it and the harmonization often of these within the individual. It's based very much on a kind of metaphysical premises. A lot of it's derived from films of Hinduism, actually, and then given a Buddhist overlay. Um, that's what actually happens. Um, most of the tantric teachers came from Kashmir and Bengal, which were the sites of um, Shaivite tantrism. 
um, and that's the way it developed even in Buddhism in, in that. In the early texts, you don't find so much of... Well, in fact, you don't find any of it, as far as I know. But what you do find, and I'd say this to um, all of you, you find these wonderful sets of poems, uh, which is part of the Pali Canon, which is, is canonical, um, which are the poems of the awakened monks and the poems of the awakened women, you know, of the awakened nuns. Um, they're called, the one's called the Teragata, and then there's the Terigata, which is the, the Teris are the, the female nuns. And these are the tales of these awakened women. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, much inspiration can be drawn from this. I mean, the, these women had tough times, you know, as did the men, but the women even tougher because it was a very sexist society, ancient India. You know, these are, these are the heroines of early Buddhism. You know, literally, those who are you know, going against the whole social system of, of ancient India. I mean, it was just an extraordinary thing for women to do, to become renunciates in those days, let alone to get the goal that the Buddha spoke about, of being completely awakened. Um, they're a great set of poems. They're all in translation form. And I think they're just called the, the poems of the nuns and the poems of the monks. Uh, and they're wonderful things to read. I mean, I love the... I always remember the opening one very well. well. I'll, I'll quote it to you, because I think it's quite funny. It's just, this is one of the women. She said, free, free, absolutely free. Free of three things. The mortar, the pestle, and my crooked-back husband. <laughs> that shows you what freedom represented. <laughs> In those days, um, but they're wonderful. They're a wonderful set of poems. They're worth uh, they're worth reading. Um, but you don't find, you know, the kind of things that I think you perhaps are looking for w- within these early texts. Yeah. yeah, the lady, lady at the back, and then. Yeah. Yes. I think this is a lesson about meditation in general. That's the way it is. Some days you will feel it. It's like, you know, outside of the meta-meditation, let's just speak about that for a second. Outside of the meta-meditation, you know, we can, each time we sit, something is going to happen differently. Sometimes the mind will be quiet, much more peaceful, much more controlled. The breath seems to be the focus. And you think, oh, great, I've got there. And then you come to the next session. Um, I mean, I always tend to think of, you know, um, Bhante Gunaratna's little phrase, you know, welcome to the madhouse. <laughs> you know, you look into the mind and there it is, it's chaos. And you think, what have I done differently? 
I haven't actually done anything differently. And that's the same is true as metta practice. You know, sometimes there will be that open, expansive sense of connectedness with the other person, and sometimes there'll be contraction. It's much, obviously, it's about your own mind. It's about the state of your own mind at that particular thing. And I'm going to talk about a little bit about this tomorrow morning, actually, because I'm going to lead in, about the moodedness with which we come in to each practice. Yeah. Um, I was going to say this tomorrow morning, but I might as well say it to you tonight, because you're always in a mood. <laughs> you're never not in a mood. Yeah, and that mood will often generate contractedness or openness, stillness of mind or chaos of mind. Um, and it's working with that. It's working with how it is at that moment in time. So actually, if there's contractedness, it often means that you have to put more effort into the practice. Yeah, it means you know, that which came a little easier when the heart was a little more open, a little bit more responsive to the person you visualized or thought about, in that you have to make a lot more effort to connect. Yeah. And so it really comes down to effort. A much underrated term, actually. Um, effort is required in all of this. Yeah, it's, really, it's really important. Yeah. So there's no magic tricks, unfortunately. I wish I had. The, I was always wish when I was talking, like you know, when I'm talk, teaching these courses, that I had a little box of magic tricks that I could say. Well, will you just do this? Actually, there's no such thing, and the Buddha, the Buddha never speaks about there being such little magic tricks that we can engage in. It, it is really just the hard work of sometimes loosening off with effort if it's over there, if it, there's too much, and sometimes putting in a lot more effort if there's too little looking at our moods, looking at the openness, looking at the contractedness, working with it. You know, it's working with how we are when we reach our chair or our cushion. You know, it's doing that. So there's no, there's no unfortunately, magical bits to it. So later down here. And then behind me. Okay, the, uh, Tathagata, which is another word, peculiar word, yeah. Um, for those who didn't hear that question, this was a question about, sometimes the Buddha seems to be referred to as the Lord Buddha. Um, and the person who's questioning this wondered what the derivation of this word was in, in Pali and Sanskrit and also about some of the other epithets which are also used about the Buddha. I mean, he himself gives himself an epithet, um, rather, than um, refer to himself in general as I, although he does refer to himself a lot uh, through the text as I. It's very simple. The word, the word in Sanskrit and, and Pali, it's actually a Sanskritic-based word, is actually Bhagavan. Bhagawan actually means a lord, and it's a term of respect. Yeah, it's a term of respect which is actually used in ancient Indian society for somebody who's literally in the position of aristocracy, kingship, uh, somebody who's achieved something. Um, so it's, it's, it's very much a term or an epithet which connotes respect to the person. And you'll find that term. It's unfortunately, it gets translated as the Lord. I sometimes think these terms just ought to be left untranslated. 
Um, the, the epithet the Buddha uses about himself, Tathagata, well, this is a peculiar one because the derivation is, of the word is actually ambiguous. It can mean thus come and it can mean thus gone. It can mean both of those things. Now, I think the Buddha's playing on both senses of this. What it means by thus come is, it means come into this world. Thus gone means having understood and then exited this world, the samsaric world, when I speak about world here. So this is the why this word is used, the, the, the word Tathagata. The word Buddha, by the way, is also an epithet. It's not a name, as many of you know. The Buddha does not have a name. Um, this is always a surprise because everybody thinks he's called Siddhartha. This word is only used, or this t- name is only used 500 years after his death. It means you know, Siddhartha, actually, in, um, in Pali, means one who's accomplished. Yeah. And it's almost like a policy statement that's being used about him after, after, his, um, after his death. So it's not used till 500 years after his death. The word Buddha is derived from, from Bo in, in Sanskrit, which means to wake up. Yeah, so it, thus it becomes an awakened one. His clan name is Gotama. Um, that's what's called his, his, his Gotra name, which is, is the, the clan name, is Gotama. And that's about as close as you get to a genuine name in the whole of the early Pali texts. Um, he's actually, if you want to, I, the, the word Buddha actually is only used incredibly rarely. I think there's only about eight or nine instances of the word Buddha being used. And I think they're late insertions into the early texts. This word is hardly ever used about him. These days, I don't even want to call him the Buddha. I will continue to. But I don't even want to call him the Buddha. I just want to call him Mr. Gotama. <laughs> No, he doesn't call himself the Buddha. He always refers to himself as Tathagata when when he's referring to himself, or simply I. Sometimes he says the Tathagata did this, the Tathagata did that, and sometimes he says I did this, or I did that. Pardon? (laughs) No, it doesn't work for me. (laughs) Okay, there's another question, and then we must finish by. Did you have a question? Yeah. Well, that's a personal question. How do I handle it? 
Let me answer generally, and then I'll answer the personal bit of this. I mean, I think what's, you know, what you were saying about this... Yeah, I could try and repeat the, the main elements of it. The main elements was basically, you know, actually being in a community like this, even for a short period of time, which is what this is, you know, for seven days, is relatively easy, you know, to, in comparison to stepping outside into the other world, um, into the ordinary world, and there you find, as I think you put it, everybody swimming in the opposite direction to the way that you're going. And so it, become, it actually becomes quite tough. I don't know, I think you were implying that, whether you said that, I can't remember. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is true. Let me, let me just try and paraphrase that again. Uh, the, the comment was being made that often a lot of hurting goes on, I think inadvertently, is actually through unawareness in life. Um, you know, and even the other person is just simply not, literally not aware that they are hurting, yeah, engaging. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I mean, I think, I think what you're saying is right. I mean, there is a, I mean, a, lot of, a lot of the damage, a lot of the hurt that's caused in this world is not done actually with tremendous, what I call, malicious intention. You know, it's done through simple unawareness. It almost comes back to what I was saying earlier on when I was answering I think the very first question when I said about you know we have to become aware of our activities that's one of the, that's one of the chief considerations we, we have to become aware of our activities because of an awareness that they can have those consequences of hurting others and actually if we think about it that probably for most of us in this room might be something we just don't want to do if we can possibly help it you know, that we can possibly avoid being in those situations. Yet, we will live in a world where people are doing that. You know, um, they're not practicing the sorts of things which often lead to that heightened sense of awareness about your actions, you know, the activities of your speech, the activities that you engage in physically, and you know, even what you think. You know, we can be in a toxic environment and nobody said anything. You, know, it's, you just feel the tension. You just feel uh, the toxicity uh, around you. Um, I mean, the way, I think, to, to really cope with this, to, to do it, and that's partly what I'm engaged in myself, is to really root yourself in the practice to really settle yourself in the practice, whereby you can begin, for example, to extend the generosity to others that even if they do hurt you, a lot of it is done inadvertently. It's not done with intention. Unfortunately, you happen to be the object in their way. (laughs) That's often true. I mean, I tend to think a lot of anger is like that. A lot of anger, you just happen to be the person that gets it. 
Yeah. And it's almost like the culmination of you know, frustrations of life. And there you are, and it can be you know, the smallest thing that triggers it. And there you get this whole stream of stuff. Yeah, and really what you're looking at is people's pain. Yeah, this is really what you're beginning to look at. And I think when we begin to see this ourselves, you know, our own pains, and often this is why I say root yourself in your own practice, because you can then begin to see how sometimes when I am unaware and I you know, hurt somebody else, and I actually begin to see that it was through that unawareness, and actually the, what I've done is often driven by frustration and pain and all of the sort of things that arise in our lives, then you actually begin to, begin to come aware, become aware that that's exactly what's going on for other people. Yeah. If it's going on for us, by process of analogy, I think it's very useful um, to actually say, well, that's what's going on for others. And that when somebody is really angry, and it seems to be so unfair... It's actually an expression of their pain as much as anything else. You know, and that actually should lead us to compassion. That should lead us to having a much gentler, friendlier attitude towards it rather than reacting to it. You know? So, what I tend to do is do a lot of that reframing around it and hopefully extend uh, much more generous feelings about why people act in the way that they do. I mean, we, all of us, act in such bizarre ways, you know, don't we? I mean, we just do the most crazy things a lot of the times. The one thing you'll discover, you know, if you take this path seriously and do it for is the wonderful intricacies of almost perversion of the human mind. You know, what this human mind can get up to. Um, and engage in. Yeah? And all of us are doing it to greater or lesser extents. The difference is, I think, in following this type of path is that we're trying to get some light in the darkness of this stumbling around. Because I've said it comes from pain, but a lot of that pain is generated by confusion, fear, hurt. You know, all of these things are involved in, in what's going on for others and when we look around you know, and we identify with that, perhaps it opens the heart a little bit more to people rather than closes it. You know, and I think it's very difficult because if you're on the end of a, a tirade of anger, it's very difficult to generate that. You know, it's very difficult to actually just step back a little bit, reframe and think, actually, this is coming from a place that's not actually about me. It's just coming from a place of you know, fear, frustration, hurt, anger, all of these things. Um, and actually, rather than getting angry, getting irritated, getting hurt, actually compassion is probably a much better response in this. Um, perhaps helping, even helping, if possible, them to see that this is you know, why the activity is arising in this way. Yeah. So I think that's you know, how I would see it. And that's just, this is, you know, what I try to practice myself. Try, to try and see that uh, there's a lot of woundedness out there in human behavior. There's a lot that we can disagree with and a lot that we won't approve of. 
but it doesn't mean that you know, it puts us in a sort of righteous position. It just means that we can see it a bit more clearly. That's all. It doesn't make us righteous. Yeah. Okay. 